Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life. And this is our first full-length interview episode of 2023, so I'm super excited to start this new year off with an amazing guest, Glenn Williams, who is a retired officer, investigator, detective, and is now an author and program developer who is out teaching people real-world applicable ways to overcome post-traumatic and occupational traumatic stress. Hey, Glenn, how's it going? Great, Krista. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to start this new year off right. So I wanted to get somebody on here who is making waves, making change, and creating an impact for real in the lives of first responders. So let's start our conversation off and just talk a little bit about what was your childhood like? Who were you as a little one? Wow. I was the oldest, so I got to learn early. <laughs> and my folks learned on me. Um, I was an athlete, uh, a student. I grew up in a small farm town. So pretty much everybody was an athlete at that point in time. But my father was a coach, a teacher. And I learned early, suck it up. We just learned uh, then you're a guy. You can take care of this. You got this. You don't need anybody's help. And that's how I grew up. Um, you know, I grew up learning to work hard. Um, didn't, you don't get anything in life without working hard is what I was told. And the harder you work, the better you will be. And that was how I, I grew up and I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, it was a, you know, I would go back and if I had to grow up again at, at that same time, I'd go back to my hometown. Um, things have changed a lot since then. So did you have a military or first responder, uh, family? Uh, my grandfather was in World War II. Um, and that's about it. I, my other grandfather wanted to go and they wouldn't let him because he ran a farm and that was one of the exempt occupations. And he was bitter about that for the rest of his life. He wanted to go serve. Um, so other than that, no, at the time. Um, then I did have a brother-in-law who um, served in the army. He actually worked his way from private to general. And uh, he was a great influence on me. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, then my kids um, have both, two of my kids have served. Um, one went to Iraq in the army. She was a medic and the other one went to Afghanistan. Um, he was in the 82nd Airborne. Unfortunately, he got blown up over there. He lived. But that was an experience uh, three, you know, over three years of Walter Reed, 40 plus surgeries for, so he could sort of walk again. He was only 20 at that time. But, um, you know, there have been others in the past, yes. Um, but most recently, that's about it. So did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> And then I learned early in college physics and uh, organic chemistry took it out of me. And I learned that I wasn't cut out to be a veterinarian. <laughs> oh, no. So, so you always uh, knew that it was a helping profession. But the yes. math and weren't your friend. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, that's what I learned. Then um, as I was working through life and raising a family, um, 
I started actually working for the post office and I heard about the postal inspection service and I suddenly found out that's what, that's when I discovered that's what I really wanted to do. So I went back to school at night, finished my degree because I had to have a degree to qualify. And I um, took the testing and I talked with the recruiter and asked her if having sugar diabetes, because I have type one diabetes would be a problem. She said, no, um, it took me two years to finish my degree. And when I got my degree, um, I did my application and then uh, they disqualified me because I have diabetes. <laughs> and so I was kind of hung up. I didn't know what to do. I finally found out what I wanted to do with my life and they wouldn't let me. So I was talking to a friend one night um, and he says, hey, Sandy PD's hiring. Why don't you go apply there? And he was the investigator for the uh, DA's office. And um, he had worked with people out there. And so I went and applied. Uh, there were three openings, 500 plus applicants. And I was one of the ones that was hired. So that's how I began my career. That's perfect. So how long did you serve as an officer? 26 years. Um, I spent 20 years at Sandy PD and then I retired from there at 20 and I went to work for the uh, Utah Transit Authority Police for six years there. And that was a whole different world. <laughs> so you made it through what one would probably consider a full a full term career. Yeah. At, um, at the time you could retire at 20 years. And so that was uh, why I retired from Sandy PD. Um, and that was considered there. So yeah, um, 26 years in total. I finally just got to the point where I said enough's enough and I'm done. Um, I had changed a lot of ways in my life at that time and it was time to move on to something else. And you, you did have some struggles with post-traumatic and occupational stress. I did. And I didn't even realize it at the time. Um, and that's, you know, like any normal officer. And that's the thing. I'm not some rock star. Um, you know, I was never on any task force hunting serial killers or anything um, like that. I'm just an everyday street cop. Um, I did spend eight years in detectives. Um, but during that time, I saw things um, and the ones that rip you up are the, the worst ones are the kids. But I've basically broken it down There's it, to me. And I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on TV or anything. But there's three types of trauma. You have experiential trauma. And those are things officers and firefighters and public safety professionals see every day. And then you have leadership trauma. And leaders can either create trauma or they can help you. Um, get through it. And then you have relationship trauma. And those are the relationships in our lives. Some of them, um, I guess, uh, one other term for that would be toxic. Um, and that would be could be a traumatic relationship. And between those three, if you tie, um, you end up with one, that's not good. You end up with two, that's even worse. And if you end up with all three, um, somewhere along the lines, um, that can tear you up. And Mine was mostly experiential trauma. Um, the worst ones are the kids. Um, you know, I had one experience where I came into roll call at six in the morning. And just as we're getting seated, um, got a call in my area of a missing child. And so we went and looked for this child. And uh, 
I got there and as I pulled in, it was kind of funny, weird that the fountain, some teenagers in that forward port soap suds in the fountain in the, in the courtyard of the apartment complex. And there was bubbles 10 feet out of that fountain and overflowing onto the street. And it was like, Oh man, what a mess. Um, but we knew it dissipate. So we didn't pay much attention, went down and looked at the, for the kid. And the first thing you check is the, the home. Cause that's where 80% of them are found. Um, and the parents called him little Houdini. He was an escape artist. They'd actually put an extra lock on the door and he still got out. Um, we searched the complex, you know, asked the questions, where does he like to go? Where's his favorite playground, et cetera, et cetera. Where do his friends live and that he likes to be with. And so we searched the whole area for about 40 minutes. And then, um, we gathered, right by that fountain in the parking lot trying to figure out we didn't find him obviously and so we're looking and trying to figure out okay what's our next step and as we we're standing there a little breeze came up and parted the some of the soap suds and we saw a foot in the water it was the child in the in the water and um I pulled him out i did cpr on him I got him over to the fire department when they got there. They took him up to the primary children's hospital. And unfortunately, he did not make it. And we got notified of that while we were still there. And I got really lucky. I Not lucky that day for that reason, but I got lucky because I had a good leader that day. My lieutenant happened to be there and he looked at me and he says, are you okay, brother? And this first time I was an officer 17 years at this point. And this is the first time anybody has ever checked to see if I was okay. He says, are you okay, brother? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, go take care of yourself. Don't worry about your report. And I went and sat in a church parking lot, backed up against the wall so nobody could come up on me. And I sat there and bawled my eyes out for about an hour. And he and I are actually still friends to this day. I've learned to be very much more picky about who my friends are, and he's one of the good ones. But those are the ones that rip you up. Um, you know, and I was I was angry. I was angry at the kids for putting soap in the uh, in the fountain. I'm sure that's probably what attracted the uh, young boy to the fountain. And I'm angry at myself for not even thinking about that. Um, and I was I was really angry for a long time, and then I was hurt because I didn't I couldn't save him. And even though I've I'm a, I've taught first aid CPR I've done all that stuff, if you're doing if you're doing CPR they're already dead and it's a miracle if you bring them back and I know that but it still doesn't hurt any less. Right. And you know those are the type some of the types of instances that hurt and that rip you up. I commend you for being able to say out loud in that moment, "No, I'm not okay." Yeah. Because so often that's not what happens even if someone reach out reaches out so often people just brush it off and say i'm fine oh yeah no. and if somebody says i'm fine you better re-question them because <laughs> yep. um, i don't know how many times in my career i had done that and everybody else does because we got this we don't need help yeah so much yeah some of the kids are still to this day 20 years later still the visions that I have, those moments. And it's not always necessarily the the death or the incident itself. Uh, my challenge, the things that haunt me are it, more often than not, the 
reactions of the family members. Yeah. It's it's that moment when mom is just screaming that scream that only can come from absolute desperation. And when they're looking at you to solve the problem and you can't. Yeah. Those are the moments that I'm still struggling with letting go of. Uh, not that we can't save them. Not that the bad stuff doesn't happen. But just that moment of emotion that is so raw and so vulnerable and not having any way to help that person either it is, is really difficult it is and we force ourselves to hold it in i i mean in that case i held it in until i got the parents taken care of and and the family set up so that everybody was everybody was taken care of um and they were on the way to the hospital and neighbors were helping out with their other kids and you know we got it all worked out and then and we just can't let go at that point because we have to be strong for them. Right. That's the way I looked at it. And uh, I still I still look at it that way. We've got to be strong for them and help them through that. But in so many instances in the past, we forget then after that that we've still got to take care of ourselves. And that's one thing I go around and I preach about now is if we're not okay, we can't help other people. And we right. can't be the best we can be um, if we're we are not okay. When I think we're talking right now about one of the biggest challenges of occupational stress, one of the biggest things that is difficult to fix for, for first responders. We have to be aware of our emotions. We have to be open to communicate and connect with others. And we have to be willing to talk about things and be open and feel the feelings. But we also have to be able to shut down when it's necessary. So we almost need to learn how to have a, a really functional on-off switch <laughs> that we use regularly, and there's no way around it. We can't just be emotional beings, and we can't just be non-emotional beings. We have to find a middle ground where we're able to function in both spheres equally effectively. And, and that's actually one of the biggest problems that, in and I'm speaking specifically law enforcement, but I'm sure EMTs, fire, and everybody also has, is we shut it off. And we forget that we can turn it back on when we get home um, and that we don't talk about it. You know, I didn't talk to my first wife about stuff. I didn't want her to worry. Um, you know, there's there's things that happened that I almost got run down by a car who's charging me and and some of the fights that I was in and things like that. And I just didn't want her to worry. So I didn't say anything. And that just built a wall. And that led to I mean, I was married 19 years, but after 19 years, there was it was done because I quit talking. And then I realized later that not only had I quit talking, that had led to her quitting also. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things I'm really critical right now about is that I really want to help and assist people with is maintaining their relationships um, through these issues, because what we've been doing for all these years is not working. And has not worked. And that's what evidenced by the high divorce rate and the right. high suicide rate. And so if we can just maintain some sort of communication, and that's one of the things I teach. When I went to the academy, it was kind of funny. Uh, they brought our spouse in for a four-hour session. And they said, you know, the divorce rate in law enforcement is extremely high. You're going to see things, though, that you're not going to want to talk about. They're going to be too horrific. And you're going to see things you can't talk about 
because it's an ongoing investigation, but keep that communication open with your spouse so you don't get divorced. And after four hours, we all walked out of there looking at each other going, and, and, uh, they never told us how, and it took me 25 years, but I finally came up with the how. And that's one of the things I, I am really critical on is open, honest communication. Right. So we can share with our significant others how we're feeling. We can mm -hmm. share our emotional needs in the moment. We can say, I had a really hard day. Can you just sit with me? I had a really hard day. Can you just hold me? You know, you this can... case was, you know, challenging for me. It's okay to say those things, even in the midst of things that we can't talk about. They shouldn't be asking for details. You don't right. want to be rehashing details. But well, you, you can... can say you can even share the experience, leaving out the some of the details. In a general way. I'll tell you what I did. You know, I, I a kid came you know, running out the door and yelling for help. I went charging through the door with my weapon drawn to take down the bad guy. I took him down. I went and checked on the victim and worked through everything there and everything's okay. I mean, that's, that's a brief, real brief description of one night where I, um, a guy tried to kill his wife and she went over to her parents and I sat out there all night in front of the house. So he wouldn't come back. Well, he came back but he snuck through backyards from four blocks away and crawled through a back window and he shot his wife. And right um, after the shot, um, after that occurred, a 12 year old brother came running out and I ended up going in and having to take the guy down. And unfortunately that's another one that just bothers the hell out of me because the family wouldn't let me stay in the house to protect her. I had to sit out in my car on the front seat in the street. And so all I could do was react and you know, I know if I would have been in the house, probably would have been in a gunfight. That's okay. I was ready for that. But they and they weren't, but they felt they could protect her because uh, the guy was a gang banger, the husband, and these guys were a gang family. And so they got this, but they didn't. And, uh, you know, so as we go um, through those things, um, I can rephrase that. Um, and I can talk, you know, I don't have to talk about how when I went in to check on her, I could see the bullet hole in her forehead and the blood trickling down her cheek. Um, that's something I will never, ever forget. The fact that she had her two-year-old son in her arms when he shot her, I will never forget. These are things that I don't have to share that part of. But I can tell, say, yeah, when I was going through that door, I was scared. I knew I was going to get in a gunfight. And they were fighting in the living room. And when I waded in and I tackled the guy, I realized who the bad guy was and threw him down and got him handcuffed. I was scared as hell because I couldn't find the gun. I knew there was a gun somewhere and I couldn't find it. And, uh, you know, the evidence guys later found it had been kicked underneath some floor leg drapes and nobody knew where it was at. <laughs> Thank goodness in that case. You know, so those are things that they stick with you. But I can share that is, yeah, I went in, I was able to take the guy um, down, put him into custody. That's what I did. And then I went and checked on the victim and I can leave it at that. And, but here's how I felt. I was scared. I was scared like crazy going through that door. Um, I was disappointed in the outcome and I was, you know, the family blamed me for their daughter getting killed. Um, and I, that, that hurt, 
because I know if they would let me in the house, it wouldn't happen. And, you know, that's just those, those things, how I felt I can share and just a little brief details, not the, uh, the gory details. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to, there is secondary trauma. So wives of first responders and husbands of first responders uh, are, are vulnerable to actually getting post-traumatic stress from hearing the stories in great detail. So there has to be a balance there that we uh, give our significant others the emotional connection that they need and that we need without, uh, without traumatizing them as well. But they're not as fragile as we always think they are. And every time we try to protect them from our reality, we're actually putting a nail in the coffin of our relationship because yep. that protection, as you say, builds not only walls, but huge caverns that people can't cross. <laughs> so. And I've talked to spouses and they say, I know when he's holding back and, and the mind is a, it'll always tell you what you can't do in the mind, why things won't work. And so the, their mind automatically goes to, okay, the worst place it can go. He won't talk to me. What's going on? I know there's something wrong. Is he having an affair? Is he doing right. this? Is he doing this? And they automatic, the mind automatically goes to those places. And then that creates discord and that creates distrust. And then you wonder why the relationships fall apart. And it's really not anybody doing anything wrong. It's just kind of the way it is. And by holding that communication back, that's where it goes. Yeah, communication and community are probably the most important pieces of this puzzle, creating those connections with others who can actually support us in a way that is desirable. Because we don't want a stranger reaching out and saying, hey, how you doing? Just because they read some kind of t-shirt that said, oh, do a buddy check. No, we want actual legitimate buddy checks. We want our people who know what we're going through and have the same stories to say, hey, are you okay today? Yeah. Because we can have a conversation about not really so much today. How about you? And we can go back and forth and we both know it's easier to talk about when someone else is hurting too than it is to talk to someone who has no idea what the heck, like they don't know the weight that we're carrying. So those connections with peers are crucial. Absolutely. I know back in that day, we did not have peer support and I'm excited to see the peer support um, groups that are coming out. And it is critical that we talk with somebody that actually not just is going through the motions, but cares. And that's, that's what you call a relationship when you have two people that actually care about each other. And that doesn't have to be a marriage or that type of relationship. A relationship's a relationship. Um, say I have a couple of buddies that I talk to a lot um, about stuff and they talk to me and we've known each other for, for 25 years and they've been in law enforcement. And those are the people that we actually, um, that I actually connect with. Um, there are others that I've been in law enforcement with. I wouldn't talk to them for anything because I don't, I don't have that connection and I'm not sure they really care. Absolutely. So you are on a mission to bring awareness and 
as you say, to bridge the gap. Tell yeah. us a little bit about your mission, your journey, and your process. Um, I just d developed PTSD. Um, when I got divorced the first time, my wife actually told me that she, she I can't divorce her because she has cancer. Well, I kind of gone, no, you don't. I mean, that's something you'd think they would share with you earlier. Well, that kind of was proof about how bad our relationship was at that point because she did have cancer. Um, so kind of hung on to things so that she had insurance and things like that for a while. Um, and I don't want other people doing the same things. If I can help one person today not do the same stupid things that I did and they make, save a relationship, then I still win. And that's my whole goal in life right now is to help others. Um, one of the things I discovered is we put ourselves in this tiny little box in law enforcement, in public safety, we've got policies, procedures, this, 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 this. And if you look outside that box and you get outside that box, um, most people are afraid to because that's they get in trouble. Um, what I discovered in my healing process is some of the things outside the box actually work um, better than some of the things inside the box. Um, I don't like meds. I'm deathly afraid of them. Um, I mean, I had rotator cuff surgery and I took one oxycodone and that was probably the most painful surgery I ever had, but I took one and I didn't like the way it made me feel and the rest got flushed down the toilet. And um, I, cause I just don't like that. I've had friends get addicted from it. Um, so what I found out is I, is I try other things outside, even for that or healing my, the PTSD, for example, uh, Tibetan bowls. There are these metal bowls made in Tibet and they put off a tone and the sound will all, you can actually go into kind of a trance with it. Um, meditation is amazing. I do meditation several times a week and depending on how I feel and what things, but that's part of being in tune with, with who I am and, and my body. And um, just um, like back in the day, uh, drum circle that would have been a bunch of hippies and dopers around a fire beating on their drums well there's actually shaman led drum circles for healing and the just like the tibetan bowls the sounds and the vibrations create a healing process um and i mean there's no way in heck 25 years ago i would have ever gone to one but now i go occasionally um as i feel the need and it recharges me and, and again, it, there's a healing process um, as you as we go through the things. There's so many things out there um, that are not Western medicine per se that actually work. And that's one of the other messages I have is get outside the box. Let's start thinking in a broader um, view. And I think that will actually, um, as we heal our family, community is a uh, two or more people with a common goal or, or cause. Our family is the most important community to us is what everybody tells me. And I always ask them, okay, if that's the most important community, then why is the divorce rate so high? And why is the suicide rate so high? And th they have no answer to that because they don't know. Um, so as we open up and allow that communication to come through, that's the, one of the keys, as you mentioned earlier, communication to saving that community. And if we have a good family community, then that will ripple out to our work community. And then that'll ripple out to our community at large and things will uh, get better all the way through the whole process. And that's, 
and kind of the ultimate goal is to create that ripple process by having great family communities and then rippling that in, out into our communities at large and improving those relationships. So you have created a book. Yeah, I have. Yes. <laughs> it's called Bridging the Gap. Oops. Got one here. Uh, Bridging the Gap, <laughs> an inside look at communication and relationships after traumatic events. And I share a lot of the experiences I had that created trauma. I talk about how I didn't deal with it back then and then how I would do things differently now. Um, and then I, I was blessed to have an opportunity um, to, I met a lady that uh, I have zero secrets from her. She knows everything that's ever happened to me, everything that's ever bothered me. And we have open, honest communication about everything. And um, because of that, we have a great relationship. My, uh, you know, my kids, I've repaired my relationships with them because being an officer, I missed a lot of things. I put the job first. Big mistake. It's a job. It's not my life, but I let it become my life. And that's another message that I have to share um, is it's not your life. You get to go make a difference, but it's just a job. And that's easily seen by people are easily replaced. You walk out the door and you're replaced the next day. And, and nobody really cares um, whether it's me or whether it's another officer, they don't care. Um, and we all do the same job, maybe not quite the same way. So again, that's another message is let's get outside the box and start thinking a little a bit along the lines of what our communities want. I'm starting with our families because that's the most important one to us. So you briefly touched on identity and identity is another huge piece of, of the, this situation. In, in our offices, I have never asked a single police officer who they are and not gotten I'm an officer as the first answer. They yeah. are identifying their whole being around their job. And yeah. what we're always looking for is um, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a man of God. I'm a, I'm a whatever. I am... I focus on integrity. I, I'm committed to environmental something. Whatever it is that you're actually willing to die for, those are the things that we should hear. When I say, who are you? It should be this rich answer of the roles you play in life, father, husband, you know, all of that. But it should also include those morals and, and values that you hold de dear. And like almost always the answer is, of what I'm a police officer and it's challenging to get deeper than that sometimes sometimes they don't even have answers when we go to those next level next layers you know what 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 values would you fight for I don't know <laughs> we'll get a lot of I, I don't know I've never really thought about it how can That's you funny. Think about those things that are yeah. so important to you yeah. Um, I spent three years after my second divorce, I spent three years up in my cabin by myself rediscovering me. And when you ask that question, who are you? I have, I, I have a new answer. Cause you're right. It used to be, I'm, I'm an officer and a, I'm a police officer. That's who I am. And my new answer was I'm a spiritual healing, loving spirit being of light. But I also added a mission statement as a spiritual healing, loving spirit being of light. My purpose on earth is passion, 
honor, and love. Therefore, I create celebration and abundance and peace as I spread light throughout the world. And that's, I see the teaching is spreading my light throughout the world. See, that's an answer to who I am. That's a healthy, well-rounded, introspective answer. And that's what we want to create for everyone. Yeah. That ability to go, who am I really? Not what's my label, what's the job or the role that I play, but who am I on a fundamental level? But be careful. That's outside the box. <laughs> Which is what we've got to be. It um, is. It is. I always say that I'm a little bit, I, I'm very science-based. All of my, all of the programs at battle to be are based on neuroscience, trauma research, years and years of numbers and statistics and things we can validate. But also... The fact is some of the most effective therapies are Eastern therapies that are based in spirituality. When you say talk about the healing bowls, that resonates at a harmonic pitch that calms your nervous system. So if you want science, you have to be able to look at what is your nervous system doing in reaction to these things. And our nervous systems respond really well to woo-woo <laughs> type things. So one cannot negate the power of outside of the box if one goes deep enough into the science of what's happening with post-traumatic stress. You can't have one without the other. It's impossible. No, I, you can't. It, it is amazing. What's funny is actually getting outside the box. I used to have nightmares three, four times a month. And now once, twice a year, maybe. And, and so I'm, things are shifting and it's an ongoing healing process. It's not all of a sudden you're healed, you're done, but it's an ongoing process. And as we fall back, if we fall back on what we going back to what we used to do, it comes back. Um, whereas if we keep moving forward and that's one of the big keys. And I talk about, um, for when guys that retire, they have to have a purpose. They've got to have a purpose. Uh, you know, you hear the guys, oh, I'm going to go fishing. Uh, yeah, you'll do that for about three months and then you're going to be bored. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the, that's the other thing. And this, that's why I have my purpose now. I, I'm writing a couple more books. I discovered I actually write fairly well and I enjoy it. And the main purpose is to go out and teach and help others again, not do the same stupid stuff that I did, but change things so that they have a better life. So you're available to go to speak to organizations and events. Yes, um, I have an eight hour course that I teach mostly to police departments, but um, everybody in life has trauma. So it's applicable to anybody. They just have to listen to my cop stories. And then I have a four hour seminar um, that I do for conventions and conferences. And then I also have a keynote where I talk about communication relationships um, heavily in that um, because that's so key to anything we do in life. Perfect. So if people want to reach out to you, how would they, how would they do that? Uh, com. Um, that's my website. And uh, then they can get my book on um, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. 
and I do a lot of book signings at Barnes and Noble around the country. So that's always fun because I get to meet some really great people. Book signings are awesome. <laughs> so you're also working on a new project. Um, yes, uh, we're putting together a documentary um, about how the trauma um, that officers experience affects their families, um, in that vicarious trauma that you were talking about, um, and how the behaviors that we are doing don't work so well and affect negatively affect our families. And so we'll be coming up with some solutions. Um, somehow, I, I don't know how, but I'm con they've considered me to be somewhat of an expert now. And so I get to do some commentary on things that will affect, positively affect the issues um, and point out some of the negative things and um, how we can change those. But it'll have real officers from throughout the country um, who have gone through some horrific events and the effects that those have had on their families. Um, so that, in fact, we're raising money right now for, um, Oops, I just lost it <laughs> for the uh, um, for the fundraising on the um, to get the film done. And if you go to Heroes and Families United, um, you can look that up on the website. And if you donate there, any funds will go to the production of the documentary. And that's the process we're in right now. And then secondary, I'm working on um, a script for my book. I've been told it needs to be a feature. Um, film. And so I'm working on that with a, a script writer right now too. So those are the things that are ongoing. Awesome. Thank you so much. And before we close, is there any last words you have for our audience? Don't be afraid to let your feelings show. Be open, honest, authentic, and that will improve your relationships. Um, develop it so that you don't have to hold anything back. I'm grateful for my wife. Who knows everything about me and every thought that comes, she reads it on my face before I say it, <laughs> but that's how open I am now. And I'm grateful for that opportunity. Find those beautiful connections. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Glenn, for being here with us today. Thank you, Kristen. It, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us for Rise Up, Ignite Your Life this first week of December 2023.